first began practicing metta intensively, and I guess maybe before I practiced it, I had um, sort of a bias, of course, towards towards Vipassana or insight practice, since that's what I'd done for so many years. But I really uh, had this sense that metta would be wonderful to really cultivate loving kindness and this all-embracing care for beings, but that really what was the bottom line for freedom is wisdom, understanding. And I wasn't really expecting very much um, insight to arise from doing metta practice. And I was quite surprised. I continue to be quite surprised, uh, both in the formal practice itself and in the effect that I continue to feel as it blends more and more into how I relate to experience in my daily life. And the things that I've really found more and more subtle understanding of as a direct result, I feel, of uh, practice of loving-kindness is a deeper uh, experiential understanding of the nature of uh, both attachment and of anger, aversion, which, oddly enough, are the near and far enemies of loving-kindness. So we get to experience both of these aspects, these so-called enemies, very much in our loving-kindness practice. And what the way I feel like a little synopsis of how metta, the different angle that it brought into the mandala of my practice, you might say, that has helped in its way to deepen my understanding and sense of freedom from enslavement as much to aversion, to fear, or enthrallment with attachment, with clinging has been that through metta, with Vipassana, I could subtly have the sense, even though we say you open and accept it as it is, I could get into this subtle sense of I have to uproot all the attachment, uproot all the negativity, the defilements. And a certain, just a certain sense they had to be done away with. And somehow metta really strengthened my ability to make friends with these aspects of experience. That when attachment or aversion arises in my experience and I'm practicing metta, rather than bad, get away, there's a certain sense of really flowing into seeing clearly and accepting this aspect of experience, which acceptance leads to clear seeing, which leads to deeper understanding and ultimate disengagement from either attachment or aversion from these forces of suffering. So that's really what I want to talk about a little bit tonight. Just some little experiences of working with attachment and aversion as they might come up in the metta practice, ways that it's been helpful for me. You know, in everyday small experiences, not always the big boom, which is another thing I had expected, you know, that somehow in practicing loving-kindness, the sense of love, all-embracing love, would be so powerful 
which I have experienced and had experienced before, before I practiced it intensively, it would be so powerful that it would just supersede all other experience, which it can do at times, but then it would stay that way somehow. And if I didn't hit this pinnacle of perfection of loving kindness, I somehow wasn't doing it right. And I could get into an even deeper dejection about it. This is a um, partial piece of the Metta Sutta that said by the Buddha when he was describing loving-kindness practice. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects her with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. When I read that, when I feel it in my heart, there's times it's, it's so beautiful, so inspiring, because it evokes that unbounded loving kindness in all directions. And I really can feel that, yes, let me never harm another, let me never deceive another, at times. Then there's other times when I read that or hear that, and my kind of gut reaction is, It's impossible. That is so far from my kind of moment-to-moment experience, how I live my life, even with, you know, the best intentions. And, you know, I'm not there. I'm not perfect. There's so much ill will can still come up. Aversion still comes up. So much desire can still come up. So I want to talk a little bit on that level, you know, because that, I used to think there was this huge gap. And I see that metta is really working, it's really transforming us on these little moment-to-moment levels. We don't have to think nothing's happening because we can't feel it boundlessly in all directions. When I read, another thing the Buddha said often is, hatred can never cease by hatred. Hatred can only cease by love. This is an eternal law. It's powerful. It's beautiful. When I look deeply into my conditioning, into my life, and the way my habitual responses have been through much of my life, I'd have to honestly say, do do I really believe that? That hatred only ceases by love? Is that what deeply motivates some of my reactions and responses. And rather than blaming myself at all, it's just to begin to look honestly. And this is the attitude of loving kindness. So I can look back in how I was brought up and and what I really learned in my family life. And I didn't have an abusive or horrible family life at all. But but I saw recently, uh, I think it was an advertisement for a book 
called How to Argue and Win Every Time. (laughs) Ways to Win Arguments at Home and at Work. And I thought, yeah, that's what I learned when I was growing up, that the real strength is, you know, how to win your argument no matter what. And that ultimately it usually came down to who could get the angriest with the most force you know, in my family would win the argument. I don't mean actual physical force, but really you could really... Anger has a real power to it at times, a real sweetness almost, you know. And and it also has a real discrimination that when I'm really angry to the point where my mindfulness is being overpowered and the things I say can be hurtful, they're hurtful because I'm also seeing right into the other person's weakness, you know, because there's a real discrimination that goes on with anger, but used, that's used very unwisely. Well, that's what I learned, really, about where true strength is, you know, and how to get what you want. And although there was lip service to kindness and generosity, and there was real caring when the chips were down, you know, you kind of went for the jugular a little bit. And... Um, and today I hadn't really I hadn't really thought of this particular aspect of my life this way before. But when I was about eleven or twelve I started taking piano lessons. And the woman who taught me, I came to know very well over years, she sort of became like um, a grandmother. I didn't really have any living grandparents. And uh I took piano lessons for more years than I care to remember, considering how awfully I play the piano, although I like it. But this woman and I became very close, and in her way, she was a great inspiration to me to see that there's another way to relate to life. She was a Christian scientist, which I'm not going to try and explain because I know I wouldn't get it accurate. It's not a, a way of living that I... Uh, came to myself, but what really uh, deeply impressed me about her, that as I understood anyway, the way that she talked with me and the way that she lived her life, not that she was any perfect being, but there was this deep and conscious faith and commitment to live a life that was based on love, or that love was really stronger, is really stronger than pain, than our fears, than our anxieties. And uh, as I understood the way she explained to me, a, a, a lot of uh, sense of being so sure of that it was part of the thing of not going to doctors, being so sure that love is stronger than our, than our ideas about our materiality. And so, so I never really quite embraced that aspect. But who she was as a being, more her deep faith and her commitment to try and live a life that, that came out of her commitment that love is stronger than pain, that love is stronger than fear. Uh, I realize now that that really opened me up to the fact that there's another way of living. And not that we have to be perfect in that way of living, but that we can just explore the possibility. And that's how I would really hope we could approach our loving-kindness practice. Not with this sense of the perfection 
that we must get to. If the perfection's an inspiration, an opening of the heart, that's wonderful. It's, it's, it really can point to that boundlessness. But when we fall into the aversion or the self-judgment and start to compare ourselves and judge ourselves by that idea of perfection, then can we let go of it and look at our practice as, as simply an opening to exploration, to really explore the nature of love and connectedness. And as, as someone said today, in that exploration we begin to see what blocks love and connectedness. And two of the big blockages, so to speak, that we will experience head-on in any metta retreat are going to be the far enemy and the near enemy. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each of those in the context of loving-kindness practice. So, this anger, aversion, fear, and all the different ramifications that it comes up, Irritation, grief, sorrow, anger, murderous rage, self-judgment, self-loathing, fear, terror, just slight irritation and pushing away. And you can add your own particular flavor, whichever one happens to be coming up for you. Or maybe not, maybe none's coming up for you. If we begin to look at What's actually going on? How do we experience whichever of these manifestations is in our experience at a particular moment? You see, it's not just some big amorphous blob of emotion that somehow descended from nowhere, you know, a curse from the gods. It's really, if we can bring our attention into just what we're experiencing here and now, we can see that it's arising, take aversion or fear, It's arising in this moment, here and now, as a response or a reaction to some experience that's happening here and now. It's something we can really come to know quite intimately. We don't have to be afraid of it. So, something difficult or painful is happening, a physical sensation. An aversion is a reaction of pulling away, of not liking that particular physical sensation. Or it might be a particular emotional experience, or it might even just be a thought. The thought might be of something in the future, but it's the thought that's happening right now that actually engenders the aversion. I mean, the thought might be, oh no, This pain is bearable now, but I'm never going to be able to make it till 10 o'clock tonight. Forget it. We so easily think, oh, that's in the future, but what's happening is that thought right then, projecting some experience into the future, we're experiencing fear as a result of that thought here and now. So fear aversion is always an experience that's a reaction response to physical, emotional, mental experience is happening right now. Which to me simplifies it enormously. Because then I can sort of get a handle on coming in and seeing how it's happening. So when I realize, say that sense of there's a knee pain. And there's aversion to the knee pain. And then there's that projecting it into the future, that thought. And then there's fear. But how do we actually experience 
the fear or the aversion in a moment of experience. It's experienceable as the mind, the heart, the attention flinching away, pulling away from whatever it is that's happening. So like I remember in the other night when I was talking, I mentioned how I was, had this feeling of real heaviness and tiredness in my body. And there was a knowing of it. But when I really brought my mindful attention in to feel it fully, I saw that what had been happening in the aversion, the not wanting to feel that way, the attention, the awareness is pulled back. It's not connecting. And it's an absolute, literal experience of disconnection, of separation. It's exactly in that moment we can see why we feel disconnected or separated. It's like almost literal with the attention. It's pulled back and we're not connecting with what's happening. That's really how aversion, how fear works, so to speak. How they manifest when we're just exploring them, paying attention to them on a moment-to-moment level. Now, with metta, it's like it is just the opposite of that. So when we meet that experience of pain in the knee or I meet that experience of heaviness and tiredness and aversion with metta, what happens is the attention just flows right into that experience. Whether it's right into the pain, right into the heaviness, right into the emotional experience of aversion, there's no kind of hesitation there's no kind of preference, oh, I don't know, do I want to feel this or not? You know, maybe I'd rather go there. It's just like, oh, this is happening, flow right into it. And there's also no clinging to it. There's no, yeah, right, let's just make this stay. There's no agenda whatsoever. Just this moving right in, into it, and surrounding it. It's not blind in that metta only sees that pain and nothing else. It sees the pain knows the pain and whatever else is going on around it. And what's interesting is that as we are working with cultivating the metta, that's not the idea we're having. We're not sitting here saying, may I cultivate metta so that in a moment the attention can flow into the experience. We're just very simply cultivating the intention of metta coming back to that over and over. May I be free from danger? May you be free from danger? But what happens is that quite spontaneously, as this intention has been strengthened, as other difficult experiences come up, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, in our own experience here I'm talking about now, almost as if all by itself, you'll find that the metta begins to activate in that way, to really let us move into the difficult experience rather than flinching away from it. So in a way, energetically, I guess you could say, or awareness-wise, you can see how metta is sort of the opposite of aversion or fear, that it, it works in sort of the opposite way. And it's in this way that the loving-kindness, the power of loving-kindness, really begins to manifest itself. Because the strength and protection that it offers us to be with the difficult, to heal us from our sense of separation, 
It comes not by overpowering or getting rid of what is difficult or what we don't like or what we fear, but by, in a way, making friends with it, by including it in the whole context of our experience. So the metta flows into and softens and includes what is difficult, but then, at least in my experience, it expands outward and beyond it. So rather than drowning, getting lost in the knee pain, or getting lost in the aversion I feel or the fear that I feel, rather than I get lost and I'm so heavy and tired I can't stand it, the metta flows into that really experiences it in a very full way, and then, because it's non-discriminating, it also allows the rest of our experience to be noticed and seen equally clearly. So, oh, my knee is really killing me. I can't bear it. Flow in, and it's tingling, it's pressure, it's hard, it's tight. And, oh, but you know, it's really very peaceful in this room. It's really quite nice today. I like the sound of the raindrops, you know. It just opens up the whole field. In some ways, that's how, when I said the other night that loving kindness helps us open to the whole show of life, all the beautiful, all the horrendous, and everything in between. It helps us open to the whole show of ourselves, It does it by this softening into what's difficult, but also because it gives us a whole context in which to hold what is difficult. If all we saw were the painful, horrific, difficult aspects, which sometimes in our practice, those are highlighted. And we call them dukkha times or difficult times. It's just everywhere you look suffering or pain or anguish, whether it's internally or whether it's externally in the world. We can drown, it seems like, at times in that. With metta, those aspects are included, but because the context is so much larger, because it's held in this sense of totality, of acceptance and of of softness, of non-judging, the, the metta can bring a real uh, safe space to let these difficult aspects surface, to begin to um, feel at ease in accepting them and being with them. It gives a real safe, protected context. It's very powerful that way. And it happens by itself. In the groups in the last couple days, quite a few people, at least in the ones I've been in, have expressed in varying ways experiences of being able to be more present for difficult aspects of themselves or their personality. Either to be able to be softer with their self-judging, to be a little more kind when a sense of worthlessness comes up. The, The things that normally are so painful, we try not to even feel them. Or if we do feel them, we're so aversive to them, we're so fearful of them that we just, you know, shut down altogether or feel completely, you know, we just fall totally into self-flagellation. But 
it's painful, but the metta, because it includes it in the larger context, makes it all much more workable, much more workable. It broadens it. It gives us the courage to see and open to the difficulties because so clearly we know that's not all there is. And again, this is the wisdom aspect. When you're feeling a sense of metta and suddenly, as some people say, it comes up, but I don't deserve to feel this. There's something really wrong if I'm feeling happiness. I don't have that right in this lifetime, you know. And in, in the context of metta, even if you're just feeling for a moment that sense of pure loving and well-wishing, it's so clear that that sense that you don't deserve it isn't really true. You know, and it's so clear on some level that that's not who you truly are. Even though, believe me, our mind wants to keep believing that's who I really am and that's my conditioning. But on some level, having just touched metta, we know that's not true. And this gives us the courage to be able to more clearly with the metta move into this difficult aspect and not be so overwhelmed to really have the courage to open to it and see more and more it's not nearly as powerful. It doesn't nearly have the grip that we thought it did. When we were afraid to be with it without even realizing we were so afraid. So I'll just, in sharing some of my own experience of this, but in small ways, it's not always, for me it's often been in the really small experiences of opening to the difficult aspects to fear and aversion that don't seem like much at the time, but that really I see changing my relationship to myself and to fear and aversion over the course of you know years in my life. Metta, as you know, can really highlight aversion. It can really highlight fear, these difficult aspects. It's almost as if with the um, non-discriminating, open, loving attention of metta and awareness, because we're not pushing things away, it sort of makes a space for the subterranean stuff sometimes to come up much more clearly to the surface. I know some, some people today were expressing the sense of, you know, hitting a wall. It's going along fine and suddenly there's this wall and we each have our own particular manifestation of wall that we hit. Whether it's terror or fear or self-hatred or just nothingness or disconnection or again, you know, fill in the dots. But it doesn't always have to happen in the form of a huge wall. What I noticed often is just that, as I was practicing metta, just the little aversions that come up would be highlighted because it was so, at least with aversion and anger, you can tell that it's not metta. You can at least tell that it's different. At least I can. And because of that, you really notice it. I can't, I mean, really often my metta phrase would turn to, may you be filled with suffering. And I think, oh, I think I've drifted off here, you know, and kind of come back. So the, the tendency in my mind towards aversion, which happens to be a rather large tendency in my particular mind, we all have different degrees of all of it, but um, 
it would beca- became, has become over the years much more highlighted. I see it in finer and finer detail. And what Meta has done, I, I thought in the beginning that what it would do is bring me to this pinnacle of being this perfect, loving, compassionate being, you know, kind of beatific and glowing and always saying the loving, kind thing. I, I mean, I've given that one up long ago, and that's a relief. What it's done, actually, <laughs> I don't this might not be encouraging to you guys. What it's <laughs> <laughs> What it's done is uh, I've really made friends with the aversive tendency of my, of my mind. It's not even my mind. I just see it as this habit of mind. I remember when one time I, when it became so clear to me, I was on a ferry in Thailand, about an hour and a half ferry ride. Beautiful day, perfect day, and I was standing know, up on the dock, and there were so many beautiful aspects to the day. I was at peace. There was no problem. And I could see down to the lower deck, and there was all kinds of, mostly this was all foreigners. And there was one woman whose behavior just drove me nuts. Well, that was the only thing I fastened on. Immediately, I saw her being totally inappropriate, and my mind said, I'm sure she's an American, you know, and I always, you know, God, another American. I hope no one can tell I'm American. And... And I really saw that out of this multitude of perceptions and sense data, my mind went unerringly for the one that was unpleasant and really stuck there and built up a whole story and got into all this aversion. It was really interesting. I mean, it was funny because it was so clear. And I thought, oh, well, that's the tendency of my mind. Okay. Now, with metta, what happens so much is that my mind will do that about myself, about anything new that comes into my experience. I noticed when I was on retreat here a couple years ago, anytime something changed, somebody new came into the dorm area, you know, something, somebody different sat next to me at lunch, the schedule changed, anything, oh, I wasn't paying any attention to the schedule actually, but anything that changed, even slightly, immediately, aversion would come up in my mind. And whereas in the past, I would have been quite judgmental of myself about that. You know, what are you so aversive? The poor person's coming here to practice, and here you are, sending them all this negative energy, blah, blah, blah. Now, I would just notice it in that same way as I noticed my mind on the ferry. And immediately, in that noticing, with the friendliness of metta, be, oh, look at that, aversion. Without any conscious intentionality on my part, the scenario would immediately broaden and within the context of, oh, that person, they're making so much noise in the bathroom, some, the next thought would be, oh, well, but they're really here practicing. Isn't that wonderful? And that would be true. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a rationale trying to deny the aversion. When the aversion was really accepted, <coughs> included in the field of metta, the field of experience would immediately broaden and I'd have sort of the whole picture. It was really, and it has continued in that way, to be really lovely. I haven't changed really that much. It's not that that mind doesn't, the mind still goes to what's aversive. But whereas before it wouldn't have been able to notice very well the other aspect, now immediately that's included. And that's the inclusivity of metta. It makes the aversion, it really makes it so much more minimal, so much less powerful, 
I don't get reactive to it. I don't act out the whole scenario of the aversion. It's just, oh, there's aversion, and isn't that funny? It's almost like, oh, yeah, my old friend aversion's coming up again. And then there's a sense of appreciation for the other person, for myself, for the situation. You see how that inclusivity of metta gives the strength and the courage to open even more deeply into seeing how aversion arises because I'm not so afraid of it. I don't try so much anymore to put on some outer attitude of how I think I should be. And I found that I used to internally deny a lot of the little slight aversive reactions in my mind, trying to give an outward appearance, at least, you know, of the perfect person. And this led to a whole lot of confusion. When I'm not so fearful or afraid or hating of the aversion, and I really include it, it, it loses its power quite a bit. I mean, I guess you have to ask my friends if I'm exaggerating. And maybe I feel a lot you know, freer and more flowing because I'm not all clogged up. But on the other hand, I'm not censoring so much anymore either. So, and that's been safe, more or less. <laughs> it's been safe. I read, um, I was reading the Dalai Lama's autobiography last year. And at one point, of course, you know, he's always, in my mind, I don't know him at all, of course, Mr. Compassion, just one of the more wonderful beings on the planet. And I was really shocked, but then I got a kick out of it. To, To read, he was talking about how he had, in one place he was living, he had all kinds of food out for the little birds, but bigger birds would come to sort of prey on the little birds so he'd shoot at the bigger birds with an air rifle, you know, to, to hurt them, to send them away. And I thought, okay, you know, even the Dalai Lama, I can get off my case a little bit. So the fearlessness and the sense of true interconnectedness that can come through metta can come in these small ways, not, not always just living, you know, in the bounty of happiness, but in, in, in bringing a kind of a general boundlessness, opening up the boundaries of our experience. And when we're meeting the difficult in that way, with the, with the uh, fearlessness of acceptance, it allows us to see more deeply into the dynamics of what's actually going on. So, again, personally, with the sense of aversion, as I've become more and more friendly with aversion, more okay with it, again, I began to see uh, the last time I was sitting a metta retreat, as I said, every time something new came in, there was aversion, aversion, and when I stopped flinching away from the aversion and was, was just with it, that allowed me to begin to see that really what was underneath each little hit of aversion is fear. And it was such a subtle, quick fear that in thinking about it or looking for it, I never would have seen it. But by being really okay with the aversion, I began to get much more in touch 
with the fear that was feeding it, the fear of being intruded on, the fear of my space being taken away from me, just the fear of instability, the fear of change. You know, it's really beginning to see how across the board, how often that fear came up. Again, because of the metta, because of the being okay with aversion and then being okay with the fear, not thinking I had to change it. I got so I could even laugh. Remember, you know how on the three-month course, halfway through the retreat, you know how there's two lunches, halfway through the retreat they just change which lunch you go to. I went into panic that day. (laughs) You know, and even then part of my mind was saying, Carol, get over yourself, you know. Panic because the lunches are changing, you know. And, And so then I'd, but I could laugh at it and let the panic be there and then just sort of watch what little situations would bring up a new spurt of the fear, you know. You fear somebody different would be sitting across the table. I've been sitting across from one person and now I had to sit across from someone else. I'm like, why am I afraid of that? You know, it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't matter. It just let me really begin to open into what had been such a difficult experience before that as soon as the fear came up, my mind would react with aversion. I'd push the whole experience away and never even notice the fear. So really through metta, it allowed a much deeper understanding of the dynamics of the process that have been going on in my experience and with, again, in the context of real okayness, that as soon as the thought would come up, these people are really so annoying in here, so pushy, they're not at all like the ones at the other lunch, you know, it's different people and stuff, immediately would come up the balancing feeling, the balancing understanding. You know, either I could feel the pain of a person who was in some kind of like hyper state about the food, you know, or had to be first in line. You know, it's painful sometimes around the, around the lunch line. Really, I think an enormous amount of joy, but also of suffering sometimes I feel when I'm going through that lunch line on a retreat. And that's another way metta is a protection, actually. When I'm in a deep Vipassana retreat, very open, but very tuned into the suffering, I, I really am not exaggerating. I can, I can barely stand to get through the lunch line. Sometimes it's so painful to me, I almost, I'm going to throw up. I'm <laughs> serious. With metta, there's that pain, but again, there's the love, there's the connection with the pain, rather than kind of holding off from it. And it was really a protection. I was amazed that I could go through the line, still feel the pain, but it's much more balanced. It's much more uh, broad, you know. It's not just that experience. So just in these ways, I've discovered very deeply, and it continues in my daily life, it's not really that different, how the metta, the willingness, and it's not even a conscious willingness sometimes, just to flow into the situation, and naturally it expands beyond it. Fear and aversion can really open into appreciation, into acceptance, into connectedness. And in that way, through the metta, experience can become more and more boundaryless. Because the sense of fear, the sense of aversion, is very much setting up a sense of me and other. 
You know, whatever I'm afraid of, whatever I'm aversive to, whether it's in my own experience, a sense of disconnection, whether it's someone else doing or being or saying something that brings up fear or aversion, very much me or other and somehow needing to fix it. With the metta, almost immediately for me, the me and other somehow turns into us. And the metta is not blind. It doesn't mean we don't see and feel the difficult aspects, but it just gives a broader context for it. And a real fearlessness that comes from being able to see things as they are. And knowing that as difficult as sometimes overwhelming, I've been giving little experiences. I know many, many times it's much more overwhelming than this. It just all seems to shoot up the fear, the aversion, the terror, the rage. And it's, it's so hard to meet that. Sometimes the metta isn't strong enough at that moment to seemingly meet it. But ultimately it is. Ultimately, love and truth are so much stronger than fear, than anger, than terror, than pain. These difficult things can definitely seem to hide the love, the connectedness. They can definitely seem to hide what is true and what we truly are. But ultimately, the power of metta, love, and awareness cannot really even be touched by pain or by fear by anger. It can be obscured a bit, but it really can't be damaged or touched by it. A teacher of mine used to say that a spark of truth burns up a mountain of lies. And really, it can be that way. You know, we can be struggling or angry or so caught in feeling worthless and self-blaming. And there can just be one moment one spark of loving kindness that comes, even though it might fade again, in that moment, it completely, you know, shines away, shines through all the self-hatred, all the fear. In that moment, however short it is, there's no room for doubt about what we're actually experiencing. We don't kind of say, huh, I wonder, is this a real experience? Well, sometimes people say, am I making it up? But already they're out of it at that point and back to the self-doubt. In a moment when the, the love, the connectedness is really shining, it's so clear. There's no question. It's so clear that we don't need to make ourselves different to be happy, that we don't need to somehow be perfect, make ourselves perfect in order to achieve loving kindness, in order to achieve completion. It's so perfect that that's it's so obvious in that one moment that it's all here now and there's nothing we have to be different. There's nothing we have to actually change in ourselves to make that true. You know, it's already true. And then there's the times <laughs> when that seems so far from our actual experience and the memory of it, that's when we're saying, I made that up. That never happened. You know, when you, when you, as people said today, you know, you're hitting that wall. And I just want to acknowledge, and that's a very important part of the practice, 
that these intense, intense aspects come up because of the strength of the loving-kindness practice, because of the inclusivity of the heart and mind of loving-kindness. We're no longer censoring or pushing away the painful or so-called ugly aspects of ourselves. They are coming up, and it can seem like your practice has been growing stronger and stronger, and you feel like I'm really getting the flow, I'm really getting the knack of it now, and then wham, you know. And at those points is when it's so easy to think, oh, no, I blew it. Now, you know, I had a little period of grace, but my true nature is really surfacing. And this is how it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. This is what I always suspected was true all along. So I just want to say this, it's going to happen most likely at some point. It's not a mistake. It's part of it. And there, there will be times when we can just softly be with it. Okay, wall, just be with it and gently keep up the loving kindness practice. Fine. There will be times when that just is not feasible. When the wall is too strong, the fear is too strong, or what the anger, the self-judgment, we just feel like we're contracting and beating ourselves and shrinking. That's the time to let go of the formal metta. At, at first, our first kind of fallback is to move to vipassana, to really open into the soft presence and experiencing of, how do I experience the wall? What are the physical sensations? What's the emotional tone of it? Can I just consciously acknowledge it? Let it be here. Not try to change it, but be present for it. You can hear how that's not that much different from the attitude of metta. But it's taking an attitude of metta and bringing it into conscious presence with things just as they are. Sometimes in that we can get enough grounded in what's happening, we kind of find where we are again. Whereas when something really strong is going on and we keep trying to do the metta phrases, it's like you're, something really huge is going on. It's like the elephant in the corner and we're over here going, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. <laughs> huge thing is going on over here, you know. So sometimes when we do that, this keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger because we're, you know, and the metta gets smaller and smaller. That's a time to really stop and turn around and say, oh yeah, here you are, let's really be here together and see what's going on. And then sometimes, and this can be true at times for almost everybody, what's going on just gets too strong, or our contraction, or just the sense of trying too hard, you know, that we just are getting worn down. It's just exhausting and wearying. And that's the time to really step back, to take a break, to open up your field of awareness, open up your heart, and deliberately bring in some joy. Because that's the time that the difficulty is getting so large and looming so big that we can feel that we're drowning in it. And this could be whether it's a so-called internal experience, say, of self-judging, or whether somehow we're just tuning into the pain of the world and God knows there's enough, and we can just seem like we're just drowning in that. Sometimes it's something that Thich Nhat Hanh um, talks about a lot, that we have to open to suffering for understanding and compassion, but suffering isn't enough. And that at times when it's what metta does automatically, it broadens the field, 
sometimes we can do that quite consciously. So when we say, okay, it seems like it's really hard right now, why don't you just put down the practice for a minute and take a walk and open up your senses, smell the apple blossoms, listen to the birds, feel the wind you know, on your face, and just be in nature for a little bit. It's a deliberate way to try and bring in some spaciousness, some joy, to counteract the intensity of the involvement with the pain and the fear. It's a very skillful means. So we really encourage you to find ways to consciously balance when things are getting difficult. It's, it's not running away. It's different from you know, saying, well, you know, I'm a little bored now. I think I'll get into that fantasy that I had yesterday that really made the hour go fast. That's not exactly what I mean. But some way that can bring some, in an aware way, can really touch, touch your heart, touch your mind, or just bring in some ease. It might be taking a bath. It might be just taking a walk. It might be just having a cup of tea. Find a way for yourself and know that this is a skillful part of practice. It's consciously bringing in what metta does by itself. Well, there's not much time left for attachment. We're like, we're both aversion types. <laughs> when you teach with Joseph, he'll go on like this about attachment, you know, and make it sound so wonderful and he'll never get to aversion. <laughs> I do have some things to say about it, though, Michelle. <laughs> God, I've got to really cut this down. Well, this is sort of a synopsis. <laughs> So attachment's the near enemy of loving kindness. And what I experienced in uh, doing the practice of loving kindness is that I learned quite a lot, and I continue to learn quite a lot, about the subtler aspects of attachment. That where loving kindness is this real outflowing of the heart, a real like joy or well-wishing or friendliness that really meets the experience wholeheartedly. It's near enemy, which can be love with attachment. It can also seem to be really flowing into the experience, into the specific object wholeheartedly. But there's a certain (laughs) grasping at the end of it. And whereas loving kindness will see all aspects quite clearly and has wisdom with it, attachment is blinding, even in the subtler forms of it. So, for example, with loving kindness flowing towards a person, maybe even someone you don't know that well, or when you, there's just this really well-wishing, a loving a joy, you're lit up, but it doesn't, it doesn't uh, blind you to what that person's truly like. It's loving, it's appreciating them as they are. Attachment clinging, there's a Tibetan saying that clinging puts feathers on the object. It sort of pretties it up. We don't really see it in a clear way. 
So, you know, the sense of first being in love, as we call it. Um, there's certainly aspects of true metta, of real caring of someone, absolutely. But we see as we, as we practice the metta and get more grounded in what pure metta really feels like, we can see when it moves into attachment with someone, there's this some subtle sense of needing something back even if it's just that they love me back or they, they be a certain way or at least they don't hurt me or whatever. But there's a subtle changing of needing something back and we are no longer seeing that other person or that object so clearly. It's somehow prettied up. So you know the phase after you fall in love and the other person's so perfect and so wonderful and then suddenly the, the feathers fall off. <laughs> And you start to see that all the things that you love them for are the things that are driving you crazy now. You know, you think, how can that be? It's sort of, they've come down off their pedestal. So attachment can, can really feel let down, can really feel cheated, you know. Whereas metta, there's nothing that is wanted. So there's no way that it can feel let down, that it can somehow feel cheated. So, in practicing with the loving kindness, what I saw in my own experience, that just as it seems to lift up a lot of the far enemy, I also found that it easily would shift slightly into attachment and also seem to bring up all kinds of attachments. So I'll just talk about it in a subtle way. Not the huge blinding, you know, like I've got to have a pizza, I've got to have it now, I don't care who's in my way, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to, you know, I don't care what happens. That's really obvious, clinging, blind. I mean, it's not too subtle, and we can usually tell it's happening, and we can, if we don't get what we want, we can pretty much agree that it's suffering. It's, it's, it's not too hard to see, you'd think. But the, the way that the subtler levels I would find would sneak into metta, so I'll just, I'll just say this quickly because that's what I found really helpful, is where, say, I'd be sending real metta to a dear friend. And this is how it comes in with the people that we know better, really wishing her well. And all of a sudden I'd find, oh, may she really be happy. We don't see each other very much anymore. I wonder if there's a way we could get together. I wonder if there's something going on. I wonder why she hasn't called me, you know. And suddenly, I'd, you know, I'd think, sort of, that that was still loving kindness. But when I'd tune in, I could feel that the, the feeling had, you know, little by little, quite shifted. And from being an outflowing of the heart, it had kind of moved a little down. And there was sort of a little wanting coming out. And it was no longer free from suffering. And I'd find many ways that the loving-kindness, quite purely, could just easily shift. One way is that, starting to think of things that I want back from the person I'm sending it to. Another way I find it is just in how I'm relating to the practice itself, moving from truly wishing well to whoever, to wishing well in order to feel the loving-kindness which is different. That's no longer, and you're not going to feel it at that point because that's not what's being cultivated at that point. Wanting is being cultivated at that point, and that's, that's what we'll feel. And another way is 
again in how we relate to the practice where we're just, rather than just resting back in the wishes and the feeling and who we're sending it to, we start sort of getting into some kind of expectation, some subtle, subtle striving for some result, whether it's concentration or trying to get a clearer image of the benefactor or trying to be more steady with the phrases. And just this, from this real settle back flowing out, just a little leaning forward. And it can get more and more subtle. What was very interesting to me is, again, the same way as it worked with fear and aversion. It's not to, the metta didn't make me hate attachment or fear attachment and not be afraid to practice metta because I might get attached. It's like, sure, attachment is part of my life as a human being here. It's going to come up. It's not like the most horrible thing that ever happened. I can see it clearly. It's going to arise. And the more I practice metta, the more I really see the difference. And so it can really begin in our life to, to know more and more clearly when we're coming from metta and to notice as it shades into attachment and pay attention to the results. After I'd been practicing some time and felt more and more uh, grounded in the metta, more really recognizing it, more knowing when I was shading off, at that point I started to bring in uh, my relationship partner. You know, and that's really one of the reasons we suggest not bringing in someone you're so close to at first is because of how subtle the difference between metta and love with some kind of attachment can be. And that until we get really more and more familiar with the purity of the loving kindness, it can be in some way we can sort of delude ourselves because it can feel like we're really caring, but there's just that little bit of wanting something. So after I felt a little more grounded, certainly probably not grounded enough in it, but then I would sometimes deliberately work with sending loving kindness to my partner and just feel the difference. I just, you know, imagine a certain situation and just feeling this loving feelings coming out and this well-wishing for him and really seeing how whatever, all I wanted was for him to be happy, whatever that meant. And there was no, you know, but we should stay in the relationship or he should change this or that. Just really wishing he should be happy. And then suddenly there'd be this little shift, you know, and I'd see the same situation and I'd think it was love, but there was this but, you know, but, you know, he really shouldn't act like that towards me anymore, you know. And I could see when I came out in the situation that even if you're not mentioning it to the other person, when I would say or do something that overtly looked the same, but if it came from true metta, that there was none of that, conditioning that I was putting on it, he would really feel it. The response would be so much more open. And I could say or do the same thing, and I could see now how often I deluded myself that it was coming from pure metta. But there was really this unspoken need or want or whatever. And boy, you know, he picks up on that right away. And the response is totally different. Now, of course, I'm not saying there'll never be need or want or that there shouldn't be. I'm not at all saying that. But, but to be able for me to more clearly differentiate and at times when I'm feeling really tangled up 
or that somehow the communication is really breaking down. Things just aren't satisfactory. When I can go and have access to some sense of pure metta, get back to that metta space that in the deepest heart of the relationship, it's about really wanting the other one to be happy, to be free, not about getting what I want. You know, when I can really access that, even for a moment, at least for me, it changes all the suffering, all the need, and that was a wonderful to, to see the difference in that way. So, yeah. <laughs> so, in many other ways, too, attachment will come up. Not to be afraid of it. Not to think we have to hide from it. It's part of life. And with metta, you'll see that it disentangles of itself. It begins to let go of itself. And we really get to know the revelation to me of metta is that we don't have to do anything to make ourselves perfect. That the all-embracing nature of love embraces ourselves, our humanity, deeply, just as we are. It's a true deep acceptance of humanity because it sees all the warts It's not blind to it. It doesn't mean we can't act. We do whatever we can to bring more peace or change or whatever seems necessary. When we can see clearly, it's easier to act. But the embracing of of my own humanity, not having to be different, has, has been such a revelation, has led to so much more ease with myself and so much more free flowing happiness and ease to be present for other people than I used to experience. Our world doesn't suddenly become perfect. As one friend said to me the other day, when she's been practicing or feeling more metta, we roll with it better. We see it clearly and we roll with it better. It doesn't suddenly change. I just want to end by reading a little paragraph that really inspired me. The book uh, a friend from Holland just sent me. You might have um, heard of it. It's called Interrupted Life, The Diaries of Eddie Hillisom, who was a young woman, a young Dutch woman, um, in Holland during uh, World War II. And it's really about, you know, she was Jewish and she died in one of the camps eventually. But the story is her diary. It's really of just the spiritual opening really beautiful person and um, there's so you know there's there's many many stories of people where the sense of love can really triumph over amazingly horrible conditions and it doesn't the triumph of love doesn't necessarily mean that those conditions go away which is really hard for me to grasp and understand and at the same time I find I get quite inspired by people that can manifest this. And what's inspiring about this book is that she's not just this perfect being. The whole book is a struggle of feeling overwhelmed and coming back.